0: In 1958, when they built our cloister walk outside this room here, they mortared into its bricks 12 stones representing significant places in the history of Christianity. Our church historian Sally Campbell once said that a stroll through that cloister walk is like taking a walk through Christian history. That sounded like a great sermon series to me. So this is the 11th of 12 sermons in that series. Today, we think about Plymouth, Massachusetts. And uh, for the Jewish people, for the American people, our ancestors were wanderers and pilgrims. So I thought this would be a good passage for us to hear this morning. The book of Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking to the Hebrews. He says, when you've come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and you settle it, you shall go to the priest who is in office at the time and say to him, a wandering Aramean was my father. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number, but then he became a great nation. And when the Egyptians afflicted us, we cried out to the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with a terrifying display of power. And God brought us into this place and gave us this land a land flowing with milk and honey. So if you've been paying attention to this sermon series, you know that the people who eventually settled Plymouth, Massachusetts, started out in Scrooby, England, and then had a sojourn for about 12 years in Leiden, the Netherlands. And while they were there thinking about making this terrifying transatlantic passage, the piece of scripture that inspired them and empowered them is from the book of Hebrews In the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, the uh, preacher who wrote the book of Hebrews describes the heroes of the faith as strangers and aliens. But in the Geneva Bible that the pilgrims would have read, it says strangers and pilgrims. They knew themselves to be pilgrims. So Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith... Our ancestors gained approval. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place he did not know. By faith he stayed for a time in that land as in a foreign land, living in tents as did his children Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For Abraham looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham received power of procreation, even though he was of great age. Therefore, from one person and this one, as good as dead, descendants were born as numerous as the stars in the heaven or the sands at the seashore. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land that they'd left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be there. God, indeed, God has prepared a city for them. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So, let's start this sermon with a quiz. What do these people have in common? George Bush, Bing Crosby, Clint Eastwood, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Richard Gere, Hugh Hefner, Marilyn Monroe, Sarah Palin, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Since I've just told you why we're here this morning, you've probably guessed that they're all descendants of Mayflower passengers. And so are at least 10 million, and maybe as many as 30 million, other Americans. Which is remarkable when you stop to think that there were only 51 of those original pilgrims who had any children. It almost didn't happen, right? John Howland was about a 30-year-old servant to one of those pilgrim families. And somewhere during this transatlantic passage, he must have gotten bored or claustrophobic in the common quarters below decks and went onto the top deck to get some fresh air. But when a wave pitched the Mayflower down its trough... John Howland was thrown over the railing into the ocean. On the way in, though, he caught a trailing topsail halyard and hung on even though the momentum of the ship brought him several yards forward west through the Atlantic and several feet below the surface. He hung on until the crew could snatch him out of the deep with a fishing hook. The pilgrims thought it was a miracle They thought God had great things in store for John Howland, and I guess they were right because when he finally made it to the new world, he sired 10 children and eventually had 88 grandchildren. Today, more than one million Americans are his grandchildren, many greats removed. So, at its most rudimentary level, then, this Plymouth Stone in our cloister walk is a fundamental lesson in the prodigious prolificity of procreation, right? That is to say, if you have two children, and your two children each have two children, and your grandchildren each have two children, there will be 16 of you in the fourth generation. 20 million today from 51 originals. But of course, that stone is also a lesson in faith and courage. A couple of weeks ago, I quoted David McCullough to you when someone asked the great historian why it was so important to study history. David McCullough says, to remember how hard it was to get here. Yes, we all stand on the shoulders of ancestors far braver than we. The Mayflower was 15 years old when it was chartered for the pilgrims in 1620, which is positively geriatric for a ship in those days. It was nearing the end of its useful life, but it was an extremely reliable boat, about 100 100 feet long, with a capacity of 800 tons, which means that it could hold 180 tons, T-U-N-S, or casks, of wine, each about 100 gallons. You probably know that 102 people made the journey, 104 if you count the dogs. One passenger died en route, but another was born. They called him Oceanus. So the census at arrival and the census at departure were both 102. It took them 65 days to reach the New World, two months, ten weeks. Ships like the Mayflower were called sweet ships, sweet ships, because they carried all that wine and smelled so good but of course that was only at the beginning of the journey because there was no privy on the mayflower only slop buckets and everyone was seasick there was no drinking water but the daily ration of beer per person was one gallon and this was true for the toddlers as well who went from breast to beer mug William Bradford, a young leader of the Scrooby and Leiden congregations and later governor of Plymouth Colony for over 30 years, left his three-year-old son John in Leiden for his minister to raise. William's wife Dorothy survived the transatlantic crossing, but while the Mayflower was at anchor off Cape Cod, waiting for shelter to be built on land for the pilgrims, she fell, or jumped, over the side of the ship and drowned. No one saw it or knew what happened, but some guessed that she missed her three-year-old son. So there they are, perched on this narrow strip of beach between the deep blue sea and this vast, untouched forest which they don't know sprawls a thousand miles west to the Great Plains. And they're planning to build 19 homes, 19 20-by-20-foot 20 20 uh, and daub and thatch cottages, and also a big common meeting place, which in December of 1620, they immediately turn into a hospital because everybody, and I mean everybody, gets sick. They've been 10 weeks without vitamin C, and so they have scurvy, which compromises the immune system, And they get colds because this is New England, a New England winter, not an old England winter. And it's cold, and you get a cold, and it becomes pneumonia. And this is 300 years before penicillin. And so at one point there are six people, healthy people, to care for scores of pneumonia patients. And when winter is over in March, there are 43 left. More than half die. 13 of 18 wives and 9 of 19 husbands die. And there are only three intact couples left. Everybody else lost a spouse. 400 years later, this pitiful tribe has 20 million grandchildren, many greats removed. It's a miracle. Well, not for the Native Americans, if truth be told who are the reason they survived in the first place. You probably knew this, but I didn't know this that in 1620 when the Pilgrims arrived, there were about 2000 Europeans in the New World in North America and 50 million Native Americans. 50 million, that's a vast and sophisticated civilization. How many of you remember the third week in November? In your kindergarten or first grade year in every public school in America, when you saw images of Squanto on pictographs or felt boards or film strips or overhead transparencies. Squanto teaching the English how to plant corn by building a little dirt hill with a depression at the top and he drops five kernels of corn and three fish for fertilizer into the little volcano. You may remember that Squanto was a Pawtuxet Indian who spoke fluent English because he'd been to Spain and London, and while he was in Europe, disease wiped out his entire tribe so that when he returned to New England, he had no friends and he had no family, So he befriended the pilgrims and made himself one of them. And the pilgrims were convinced that God had placed him there for them. He was a miracle. By the end of the summer, 1621, Plymouth Colony will finally, finally look more like a town than the refugee camp it has been since it was founded. And in 20 years, it'll grow from 43 to 300 residents but never any further, because there is a town 40 miles north with richer land and a better harbor. It's called Boston. And by the end of the 17th century, Boston, half Plymouth's age, but five times Plymouth's size, will swallow up the older, smaller colony. By any measure, Plymouth was not a success And yet, that's the birth of a nation story we keep telling ourselves in every public school and in our cloister walk, partly because it's a compelling, irresistible, technicolor story, right? All that adventure, it's terrifying. But also because that Plymouth ecclesiology, that Plymouth understanding of congregational, not episcopal church management, is what ultimately shapes and gives a unique voice to American Christianity. American Christianity is very different from European Christianity. It is intensely egalitarian. And that will shape not only our faith, but our nation, because you can draw a straight line from William Bradford to Thomas Jefferson. All people are created equal, and we make our decisions together. Stay for the congregational meeting and watch it happen. But isn't it funny how God keeps throwing these stones from the cloister walk at our heads in such a timely way? It's almost spooky, isn't it? Providential? 380,000 pilgrims are making their way to Europe this year alone. They're all getting into their own rubber dinghy Mayflowers, which are smaller but just as leaky and just as scary as the Mayflower. And they're trying to cross an ocean, the Mediterranean this time, to flee persecution at home for freedom in the home they hope to find. And they'll face dust storms and kidnappers and thirst in the African desert and shipwreck and drowning in the Mediterranean and police batons in Croatia and water cannons in Hungary and cold shoulders almost everywhere but they go because, as someone put it, even dying at sea is better than staying in the hell that home has become. And putting it that way reminded me of the pilgrims and their ten weeks in storms on the Atlantic in 1620. If you have family or friends who are Jewish, you know by heart that passage from Deuteronomy I read just a minute ago because it is absolutely central to Jewish faith. It's an ancient creed. When you boil away all the dross of the beautiful songs in the Hebrew Bible and the wise proverbs and the bickering siblings and the misbehaving kings, this is what you're left with, this beautiful ancient creed. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and became a great nation. And when the Egyptians afflicted us, we cried to the Lord, and the Lord heard us and brought us up out of the house of bondage and brought us to this new place, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the story of the Jews. It's the story of the Americans, too. A wandering Englishman was my father, and when he was afflicted at home, the Lord brought him to this new place, a land flowing with milk and honey. Or we could turn these scriptures in a different direction and apply it to our situation in a different way. A wandering Aramaean was my father, say the Jews. Why wandering, What is a wandering Aramaean? Well, you probably know that an Aramaean was a resident or citizen of the ancient kingdom of Aram, which is today Syria. So a perfectly appropriate translation of this passage is a wandering Syrian was my father. 11 million pilgrims, 11 million Syrian pilgrims right now. One reporter put it, like this. Syria's refugees, stripped of their homes, families, and possessions, will continue to expose the values of the societies to which they flee. Yes? Extravagant kindness and cruel malice, both so far. All great and honorable actions, said Governor Bradford, all great and honorable actions are accompanied with great difficulties and are to be met and overcome with answerable courages. Love that phrase, answerable courages. And perhaps that Plymouth Stone is in our cloister walk so that we will always reach up and beyond our capacity to a courage we'd never be able to imagine were it not for their example. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.